part of Double P Media, doublepmedia.com. Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about the books of his dark materials, it does so in the context of the most recent book. And when it talks about the television show on the BBC and HBO, it does so in the context of the most recent episode. You've been warned. You're listening to The Dust, a His Dark Materials podcast. So you just get me today, Double M, Matt Murdick. Thanks for joining us here on The Dust podcast, where we are covering today His Dark Materials, Season 3, Episode 5, and Season 3, Episode 6. Season 3, Episode 5 is No Way Out, written by Amelia Spencer and directed by Veronika Tofilska. I hope that I said those Polish names properly. If I did not, I apologize. Uh, Or maybe, you know, if I really wanted to Americanize it, I could say Veronika Tofiska. But I don't really think that that's quite appropriate. So I don't know. I never, I get do I try to pronounce it properly and offend them because I fail or do I just say whatever I want and offend people because I don't try? It's always weird for me. Anyway, uh, The Abyss was written by Francesca Gardner and directed by Amit Gupta. And I think probably that some of the uh, Land of the Dead stuff was probably directed by Veronica also, but it's one of those things where, I don't know, there's some kind of silly rule where you can only have one director's name on an episode, even though these days things cross over all the time uh, because they film at a certain location and then they film at another location and those stories kind of cross around and not all the directors are always working on things. It doesn't matter. Uh, At any rate, those are the two episodes And I just want to tell you a little bit about the podcast first, and then we'll get straight into this. And remember remember that my musical analysis is one episode back, episode 37, so you won't even get that kind of expertise from me. Instead, you just get me rambling about these stories today. But uh, first thing I want to tell you is His Dark Materials podcast here has a contest. The Dust, we want to give you a Lee Scoresby Funko Pop doll, or to give you a Mrs. Coulter Funko Pop doll. The only way we can do that is if you submit feedback. We have a wheel. It's got about 10 names on it now of all the people who have submitted feedback or left iTunes reviews or some kind of written review of the podcast on an app, which is something that I didn't think we were going to see this time around, but we did get one. So I'm going to share that with you real soon. But if you do any of that, you can be entered in our contest to win one of these Funko Pops. How do you contact us? By tweeting at the dust podcast on Twitter. You can use Hive or Mastodon. Just search for Matt's audio blog, M-A-T-T-S audio blog, all strung together. You will find me at either of those places and you can get feedback to me there. Use that same spelling to send an email, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, or you can leave comments on the website. Guess what? It's the same spelling, mattsaudioblog 
com. You can also leave comments on our YouTube videos. Those are housed by our bosses, Double P Media. That's youtube.com slash C slash the word double, the letter P, the word media is how you find their channel. Uh, or you can, you know, do whatever you want. You can throw a brick at my house if you know where my house is. That's fine, too. Uh, I do want to share, speaking of throwing bricks, I do want to share this lovely rating uh, for the podcast that we got, which, remember, this person has now entered into the contest, even though I don't know if they'll ever listen again, because uh, Espiana only gave this one star out of five, and the title of the review was Music Only, and it says, if you want to understand why this guy thinks they made musical decisions during each scene, listen to this. Huh. Uh, thanks, Espiana, for pooping on the podcast. Pooping on the podcast. Yeah. I hope you win. I want you to have to contact me in person and give me your information so that I can send you one of these Funko Pops. Uh, at any rate, uh, there's no musical analysis, as I said, but it is time for me to give my ratings for these episodes for Season 3, Episode 5, No Way Out. Uh, this one, I gave it a rating of 9.5, and I gave it double S's, which stands for Shraff Seekers. And there's lots of cool things in this episode. I mean, like, finally the big bad shows themselves, and that wasn't even nearly the best part of the episode. There are lots of emotional scoring moments for me in this. And again, check out the previous podcast. We got plenty of Mary Malone. That's something that I've been craving. Uh, we got the Malefa using seed pods and it was absolutely beautiful. I did not think we were going to get that based on the first appearance of Atal. And I loved that we did. I loved the way that it worked. It was awesome. And we got great reunions in the land of the dead. Also, I think the only thing that is kind of a shame is that we didn't have to wait a week between episodes five and six, because this would have been a heck of a cliffhanger at the end of this particular episode. If they had in fact been able to do it week to week to week, I thought it was a great cliffhanger with the way the bomb went off and everything. And it was clearly designed to be that way. But when you're putting the two episodes together, it kind of spoils uh, all of the creativity that went into that. Also, I will give episode six a 9.5 as well. This one I'll give triple P's. Perfect. Pekla performance. And I'll just say, I missed you, Ruta G. Thank you for returning to the show because uh, we lost one Ruta in this episode, but we gained another Ruta back, uh, the actress in place of the character. But I still love, love the appearance of Serafina Pekla. And I really was saddened by the whole loss of Ruta Scotty, to be perfectly honest. Uh, that was kind of emotional for me. And not so much so because she was such a central character in the story. I think part of it was because you had this great opportunity of this great actress. And she really got very little this season. And I wish that they would have had more for her. Um, despite all of that, I mean, this old TV harpy... I would let Lyra give me an ugly name uh, like Gracious Wings 
any day because I, this, this was just beautiful. That whole thing with the harpy was just so great when Gracious Wings did the bit, you know, saving Lyra. That was so fantastic. And then the whole bit about the name, it was it was just wonderful. So lots of things in these episodes that I loved. Obviously, my ratings tend to be a little higher than everybody else's. They don't necessarily mean that they're actually that high. It's just that my zero is kind of like a seven uh, or my seven is kind of like a zero, I guess I should say. So those are my ratings for this time around. There is one little bit of musical analysis that I want to add on here. Just two quick addendums Uh, in the first scene with Will and Lyra in episode five while they're still on the boat. There are two themes that I didn't mention in my musical analysis. And one was a very slow version of the land of the dead theme that was played uh, as they were kind of talking about the loss of their demons. And then shortly after that, there was uh, what we have, I've called the Will and Lyra love theme. The first time that we heard it was when she actually reached out and held his hand at the end of episode one. And we've heard it since then. It's called Love Across Worlds in the anthology soundtrack. And it was just a snippet of it when Will in this episode, in the fifth episode says, uh, I trust you uh, to Lyra. You heard just a little bit of it in there like this. So we have spun the wheel of topics and it has landed on Roger is in the NBA, but let's concentrate on the story instead. Yes, I can see the tiny wheel, the lettering I made bigger this time around. I made the wheel a little bigger, so I can read all of these topics. It's a good thing, because Holly isn't here. By the way, Holly did leave this comment in the doc saying that the the growth spurt is no longer an issue for her regarding Roger uh, after this performance. And she also loved how the color started to return as he started to remember more stories. That's something interesting, too, about Will, because when the Harpies were talking to him, when she had to tell them to go away, when Will was listening to the Harpies, the color went out of his skin. I thought that that was a great effect, though I don't quite understand how that works because they're not dead. And so why would the Harpies have that effect on them in that way i guess because they've entered the land of the dead they are without their demons so maybe they're just as powerless that's the other thing it's it's like okay so their corporeal bodies of all of these dead people are still buried wherever their planet is so why are they there and how is it affecting them physically there's lots of things about the land of the dead that i don't understand that i could ramble on and on about but i will say this about roger i loved his bravery for going through first. I felt terrible for him in terms of the him at first rejecting Lyra and then him 
because he's starting to remember more. And he said that he had changed. It hadn't been that long since he was calling out to her for help. And then he had changed. Although the boatman did say that time moves any way that it wants down there. So for Roger, it could have been hundreds of years, I guess, which might also explain his growth spurt. At first, I really loved having those little flashbacks when they were talking about, well, it started with the Porter's Key and then them being on the roof and all that stuff. Those little scenes from the first season, they were very touching and endearing. But when I rewatched this episode, it just reminded me how much larger Roger is now because he barely came to her nose in those scenes in season one. And now she comes just over his nose in these scenes in season three. Uh, naturally, you can't help that an actor grows like that, especially when it's kid actors. These are the kinds of tough things that you just have to deal with. And I can suspend my disbelief uh, to the point where I can still say, yes, that's Roger. Uh, but I like making jokes about it. And if you hate the fact that I make jokes about it, feel free to tweet me or hive me or mastodon me or email me or whatever. I just gave you that information, so there's no need to give it to you again right now. I really enjoyed Lyra and Will's relationship of trust and everything going on here. I love the fact that Will made a point to introduce himself to Roger, even though Roger wasn't very accepting of him at first. Uh, one of the things in the sixth episode that I thought was really fun was after Lyra jumped across the abyss, how both of them were willing to go next. And then, of course, how Lee uh, ends up trumping them both uh, by just going while they're arguing. That was a funny little bit. Speaking of funny little bits, there was a writer uh, for the Independent, I guess the UK Independent, Nick Hilton, who really found his dark materials kind of humorless. And I think there's lots of great humor in these episodes. But the funny thing about uh, this excellent journalism done by Mr. Hilton, uh, the headline reads, His Dark Materials, Season 3 Review. Well acted and exquisitely designed, but plotting and humorous, and only gave it two out of five stars. Wow, that was rough. But here's the byline, and this is what got me. The third and final part of Neil Gaiman's adaption is here, complete with metaphysical musings on life and death, heaven and hell. Neil Gaiman? I mean, just do a little bit of research. And who is the editor that let that get by? It's just crazy. I just had to laugh at that. It's hilarious. So well done, independent.co.uk. Well done. Oh, enough about them. More about me. About me. Make it more about me. There are lots of questions about, as I mentioned before, about the land of the dead that I don't quite get. So, in episode four, the boatman told them, you have to leave your personal belongings behind. They still were able to get through with the knife, at least. I don't know if the alethiometer made it or not, because I don't think we saw Lyra use it. Did she? Maybe she did. But either way, those are personal belongings, right? Maybe they don't technically belong to him, and that's how they got through. But then they get to the land of the dead, and there's not really rocks so much as everything is made of the stuff that belonged to people before. Now, hang on a second. I thought they all had to leave their stuff on the dock. So does it magically appear and become part of the land of the dead once they leave it on the dock and they cross over? Or is this a rule that they've made because 
there's so much stuff over there in the land of the dead that they realize they wouldn't have room for the dead if they kept letting them bring their stuff. And if the purpose is to have them in a prison where they forget who they are, hence becoming more ghost-like, why would you want them anywhere around their stuff where they might remember something again? Isn't that exactly what happened with this story? Liar reminded them who they were again? They had things around them all the time that would have reminded them who they were if they'd have just taken the time to look for them. So I don't get that. I know, I'm just asking silly questions and I'm being nitpicky. But I don't have Holly here to talk about, you know, the context of the books and that kind of thing. So this may not be the podcast for you if you're looking for that. And this time the tiny wheel lands on Mary Malone. What would we do without you? That's a good question. What is she doing? Does she even know what she's doing? She's figured out how to see dust. And evidently Atal thinks that that's a good thing. But then she sees that the dust is flowing away really fast by the end of the sixth episode. Let's concentrate on what happens in the fifth episode, though. The Shraff and Amber. Finding the Amber Spyglass, so to speak. Typically, uh, I love the way, you know, mixing the seed oil, spreading it across is what allows it. And it shows how everything is connected in this world of the Mulefa, these wonderful creatures, even though Mary calls them talking elephants at the beginning. Uh, but her discovery here was really cool. Uh, the thing is, is that Azrael evidently has technology, as we see in the sixth episode, or, and has had it, I suppose, for a while, where he's using some kind of electronic thing to, to read it, much in the same way that she was trying to detect dark matter in her world back when we met her in season two, I suppose. But when I guess when you're on the world of the Malefa, you don't have access to all of that stuff. So she came up with this wonderful way to, to see all of that. Fantastic. The other question that I have about Mary Malone is, why can't we, as human beings, just be as open and receptive and attempt at communication like Mary does? We, we really need to do that. She is not excommunicado. She is expert communicado. And... I just loved her, the whole sequence of her going through the efforts, not just to write the language down and try and understand it that way, but understanding that the language included the movement of the trunk and everything, the way she tried to, would replicate that with her hands. All of this stuff is just so well done and shows what a truly beautiful person Mary is more so than any discoveries that she makes or anything like that. It to me, what was important was the way that she made the effort. And what a beautiful language that language of the Malefa is. I mean, it just sounds so wonderful. And I couldn't speak a word of it, I, I couldn't even repeat what was said in the episode. But to me, it just sounded so perfect and the way that they would show what Atal was saying and then change the let the coloring and the and the font of the lettering to show what it meant and how more and more of it got filled in as Mary understood the language better and better that was just really really beautifully done and of course if you go back to episode 37 you'll hear how much I loved Lauren's score for all of the Malefa stuff. 
And then there's the whole bit about the Malefa using the seed pods to roll. And last week in the book section, we talked about how this might be achieved. And I was really worried that it would look stupid and that they had just dropped it completely. And as it turns out, it looked amazing. Can you imagine being able to scoot around like that? It's like being on roller skates. And I love how it's just front leg on one wheel, one back leg on one wheel. And using the other two for balance and for propulsion. When I read the books, I'm not sure that I pictured it exactly like that. And that's just probably because of my lack of imagination when it comes to reading stories and trying to see things in my head. And it's not that Philip Pullman's a bad writer. It's just that that's a deficiency of mine. But this was way beyond anything that I expected. And it relieved every worry that I had about adapting this story. Because to me, there were two things book-wise about adapting this story that I thought were really going to be problematic. First of all, the third book is way bigger and way more complicated and goes all over the place. And the characters are all split up and they're doing these weird things that don't seem possible in a physical world. But just the fact that it's so huge, I was like, how are they possibly going to get all of the important points in just eight episodes? They need a 10 episode season. All of that stuff has gone away for me. All of that stuff is they've hit all of the major points. They've filled in some gaps where they felt like they needed to, none of which I've had a problem with. For the most part, outside of, you know, the little nitpicks like I had about the Land of the Dead, almost everything has just worked so wonderfully. And I think that this whole bit with the Malefa using the seed pods in this way is probably the ultimate championing of that idea that this story can be adapted to screen and look beautiful and give us all the feels, lots of feels just in this episode and especially in the next one. Just a super, super job. And part of that is the way that they've picked the perfect actress, Simone Kirby, and written Mary Malone and her motivations and her processes to a T and just executed probably the most difficult part of this story to adapt, at least in my mind, and made it one of the strongest and most appealing parts of the story to me over these two episodes. It has landed on, well, I'll be darn tootin'. Look who it is. Hey, Lee, you look a little pale. Okay, that last bit I just kind of added on, but... I loved getting Lee Scoresby back in this episode. And we'll talk more about Will's dad and when we talk about the next episode. But just that first initial reunion was so beautiful. And I talked about the score in that as well. But it was just wonderful to see Lee. They really made him look dead. Lin-Manuel Miranda did a wonderful job with this particular episode and the next episode as well especially with the bit about Will's dad and everything else. But just that little bit of reunion. And the first thing he does is he volunteers to help her cause. After, you know, their initial reunion, then he says, hey, I'm going to make this happen for you. Lee is the dad that Lyra deserved and never got. And Azrael's just a jerk. Uh, absolute jerk uh, in these episodes 
and I cannot get over uh, how much I hate him right now. Uh, especially when you look at how Lee is in this episode. Don't worry about what happened to him. It's no big deal. He was only doing it to protect you. Uh, but he doesn't mention that. It's just like, yeah, a gunman got lucky. And so sad to see him. I, I do, uh, I'll just say this about him. I do love that he at least mentions Hester at the end of the next episode. Because that was one of the most heartbreaking deaths in season two, right? It was just awful. It was more impactful, I think, than any other death in season two. And I love how he just downplays it. And he's so relieved that she's not dead. Also, Daphne Keene did such a fabulous job in all of this stuff, especially towards the second half of this episode. And in these scenes with Lee Scoresby, she was pretty amazing. I loved her telling the stories, and I guess that's how it kind of drew Lee to her. He heard that, you know, this girl, Lyra, was telling stories or whatever, and immediately he thought of his should-be daughter, Lyra, and was willing to help her. Just absolutely amazing. Uh, broke my heart as always seeing just remembering that he's dead again because so much had happened in these first few episodes that you kind of forget about Lee and then they're in the land of the dead and you're thinking oh well who might they see in the land of the dead but then you get to this and of course I had read the book so I knew this was coming nonetheless you tend to put that stuff in the back of your head because you dread the experience of crying over this stuff uh, when it does happen. So I just fist pumped uh, when you saw his the back of him as he's making his way through the crowd and, and you see the hat. And it was just so cool uh, to see Lee again. This topic be called Stay of Execution or Stray Execution. All things that happened at the Magisterium regarding Mrs. Coulter, Lord Roke, Dr. Cooper, and McFailed again. Speaking of which, I mean, I talked about Daphne Keene doing such a great job in this episode. So did her daddy. So did Will Keene. He was absolutely fabulous as someone who is just falling apart, reaching out to their faith for strength, just turned them into a complete shambles of a person in terms of actual morals, which is what their faith is supposedly doing. I think that it is such a great exhibition of how a line of good and evil morally can be very blurred. Like it's almost like if you go too far to the right, you come back around left again it's almost like a circular thing, and uh, that's one of those things where I just found Wilkins' performance of McPhail to be absolutely amazing. Disgusting that he wanted to touch Mrs. Coulter's demon. Just awful. That poor monkey. I, You know, over these two episodes, of course, I have a whole new perspective on the monkey once again, and every time I think that there's a reason to dislike this monkey like in the first season more and more and more you realize how much 
this monkey really means and how much of it is probably more representative of Mrs. Coulter herself. But, I mean, MacPhail is just, he's unhinged. And Father Gomez calls him out. And Father Gomez gets punished for it. And then Father Gomez is just as crazy. He's like, okay, you're taking care of Eve. Let me take care of the serpent. That's how I'll make this up to you so that you'll forget the fact that I called you out on something that I should have called you out on. It was the only time I ever rooted for Father Gomez this whole story, at least so far. I I was like, yeah, you're right, man. You know, I answer to the authority. I mean, if you're going to be a zealot, be a zealot and go straight to the source. Go past this McPhail person who is interpreting things in his own way crazily. And you're even willing to do the, the other crazy part, which is go after the serpent, which, according to the angels, that means he's going to go after Mary Malone. So I'm worried for Mary. And uh, he evidently took a spy fly with him, and he's headed off somewhere. I'm supposing that those windows that Mary found to get wherever she's going are still open because she wouldn't know how to close them, I don't suppose. Maybe only a knife bearer can close them anyway. So if they were left open, presumably not by will, but by a prior knife bearer, then I'm assuming that he will be able to find his way to where she is in the same way. So that's just kind of a scary thought. And then you have, back to MacPhail, because I keep getting off the subject and trying to talk more about Father Gomez. At any rate, just the complete insanity of the end and him saying, you can still ask for forgiveness to Mrs. Coulter and all of this stuff. And poor Lord Roke, he did everything. I loved him sneaking in with the food to talk to Mrs. Coulter at the beginning of the episode. I loved him offering to fell the guards, which he did, so that she could get away. And then, you know, kind of stalling McPhail long enough after he released the demon, after he released the monkey, he then stalls McPhail long enough and gives his life to save hers, somebody who he was sent to spy on. And I love that he showed as much concern for her daughter as she did. And that that was a beautiful sacrifice. Um, it made me kind of like the Galavespians again. I didn't care about the whole bit of the this, this Skylab wings or anything else like that. Um, it was There were some really nice moments for Lord Roke. I mean, MacPhail becomes a murderer in these episodes. I guess he was a murderer before, actually, technically. So it's like, once again, this whole line of morality, it's blurred and it gets circled around to where wrong becomes right and uh, doing wrong for the right reasons doing right for the wrong reasons. It's all very uh, metaphoric of the complex human beings that we all are. The fact that he murdered Dr. Cooper, and finally Dr. Cooper got some backbone and stood up, and look what it got her. It got her killed. Poor girl. Uh, she finally stands up for what's right, and it's only because you have a homicidal maniac um, who is your boss that doing the right thing uh, gets you killed. 
I guess this answers kind of the question about whether she had been separated or not and was just, I think we had that conversation like an episode or so back. And uh, it, it clearly, she wouldn't have made this decision uh, to stop the blade if she had still, if she had been separated. She'd just be following orders blindly because that's the whole purpose of doing these separations, right? The whole purpose of the Bullfinger thing was to make the kids like the way that Agunway's daughter is. And I don't know how they do that in Agunway's world, but they evidently had been doing the same thing. So those parallels were there. And I really am creeped out by the whole idea of being separated by your soul. And McPhail is so crazy that he's willing to sacrifice himself at the end uh, for this cause. You can't say that the guy doesn't have convictions. I mean, he was willing to go tooth and nail to the end when it came down to it. And Wilkins' performance there, he was so scared. You could see the fear, but he was also so determined. It was just a fantastic performance. It really was. And that leaves us with uh, Mrs. Coulter as we, again, pour one out for Dr. Cooper for doing the right thing. The thing that I don't quite understand is, now, McPhail did say that they changed the technology a little bit. To me, it seems it's more crude than it was before because the technology at Bolvanger, at least the kids survived. I mean, you might have the exception of Billy Costa, but I still wonder if it was just wandering around in the cold that killed Billy Costa more so than being separated from his demon. So it's one of those deals where I'm just wondering this this device seems to be much more like the device that Azrael used that ended up killing Roger. So I love how all of those parallels tie in into this episode. I mean, that, that's a wonderful way to tie all of those threads together is through this blade because it was creating enough energy the same way that Azrael's blade was, the one that ended up killing Roger, to blast a hole in the sky so that he could go through a door to a new world. All of this stuff is related in terms of the power and the cost of what it was going. And who knows how many experiments that they went through at Bolvanger in order to make these kids the way they were. There probably were lots of casualties. Nonetheless, you saw the results that there were a whole bunch of them that were not unlike a Gunway's daughter. And so this was really wonderful in the respect that you can see both for Azrael and McPhail's missions how primitive they were compared to what Mrs. Coulter was doing. Don't get me wrong, it's all evil, but at least Mrs. Coulter, who constantly reminded us in this episode that she knew about the technology, that she was familiar with the technology, and all we're seeing, this modification, seems to be a regress back to getting the energy rather than to filling the goal. I wonder if McPhail would wonder if he should have followed Mrs. Coulter's design more so because of the, um, if they, that amount of energy would have been enough to create the bomb. And Mrs. Coulter is both driven in this episode and defeatist in this episode. It's a, it's a very complex side of Mrs. Coulter that we see in here. 
the desperation of her trying to stop the device after McPhail puts him in, the way that she fought with him, strangled him, and thought that she had him down, and then, of course, he wakes back up and then straps himself in, and he's taken the key for the device so that she can't stop it, and so she frantically gets that targeting mechanism out of the device. And then it's all for naught, because this is the way Metatron is going to get even with Asriel. And I wonder if it was supposed to be just Metatron's energy or the angelic energy that ended up killing McPhail, except for the fact that I think earlier he mentioned about her sacrifice and he made it sound like she was going to be dead. And he would want her dead because she's going to accuse him of murder otherwise. Uh, so he needs her to be dead. Although I guess if she was separated, she may not be really be communicative again or not too. I'm pondering down all of these rabbit holes and I kind of missing the point of how amazingly desperate Mrs. Coulter was at the end and how that just really got to me in the fact that you know, it's emphasized later on in the sec in the next episode that we'll talk about. But without saving her daughter, um, she seems to be at a lost cause. She came there probably to die herself anyway. But as long as she was taking out the people that were going to cause her daughter harm, then she was OK with that. But here it's not about whether she's going to be separated from her demon and alive or if she's just going to be killed. Um, none of this is about self-preservation for her. And I absolutely loved that. So let's talk about Metatron real quick. We saw this being that Alarbus came and visited and, and, you know, told the goods about Azrael too. And this is a perfect way, I guess, to transition from one baddie in McPhail to, I suppose, the ultimate baddie in this Metatron, uh, because we've only got two episodes left, so there can't possibly be another baddie, right? And Metatron seems very calm, which is scary. The whole bit about, you know, you think that dust has made you like gods, and, and it was very chilling. Uh, and then the bomb itself, the way it went off, as I said in my ratings it's a real shame that they couldn't have played this episode by itself one week and made people wait a week to see what happened to lyra because this was one of the best cliffhangers uh that this show has done for certain and i'll have a lot more to say about mrs coulter when we talk about episode six what's worse so because holly isn't here I can't really argue with her about any what's worse questions, but we can always put these questions on the poll for you guys to decide. And we'll give you the results from last week's questions later on in the feedback section. But the what's worse question for season three, episode five, no way out is what's worse being trapped in an everlasting prison or having to share true stories to complete strangers. So that's the question. We'll put it on a poll. Be sure to look for it at the Dust Podcast on Twitter. 
And if you have any feedback regarding any of these episodes, you can, of course, be entered into our contest to win one of the Funko Pop dolls. How do you do that? You can tweet. As I just mentioned, you can send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S, audioblog at gmail.com. You can use that same spelling for Hive or Mastodon. My Mastodon server is not Mast2, but if you just do a search for M-A-T-T-S, audioblog, all run together, then you'll find it there. You can leave comments on the website, mattsaudioblog.com, or you can leave comments on our YouTube videos. They are on the Double P Media YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash the word double, the letter P, the word media. Your last chance to get any feedback to us. And we'll take anything for any episode for this season or prior seasons. I mean, if you're just catching up or you want to just say general thoughts about the whole season. But you only have up until Wednesday, December 28th, 2022 at noon Pacific time, U.S. Pacific time. So get your feedback in. We want to hear from you. We have lots to share later on in our feedback section this week. And it's time to start spinning the wheel for episode six. The wheel has landed on bacon sandwiches. Of course, that refers to Japri or John Perry or whatever we're calling him and however we're pronouncing it. I really didn't know if we were going to get this. I thought it was very important that we did, but I had no idea if Andrew was going to be available or if he was going to agree to do it. And remember, we're shooting during COVID and different actors had different perspectives on whether to do that or not. But I'm so glad that we got this stuff because it really produced some stuff that sets up the next two episodes. If you've read the books, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, But I think that there's something that's kind of obvious and heartbreaking about it, even if you haven't read the books. And that is the fact that I loved, first of all, the connection that Lee made with Will and his dad, because it might have been a little bit of a stretch with the name and everything, but there had already had been some seeding about, hey, did I ever tell you the story about the shaman who made me a bacon sandwich? And then once he saw the knife, he was already putting things together. So it didn't seem like that much of a stretch for Lee to do that. Now, the whole bit about Lee finding him or finding a way to summon him, I guess that's a little drop to season two. Seems like Lee had a lot of ways to summon people. He had some of Seraphina's Cloud Pine. That worked, albeit too late. And I guess he had a way to summon John Perry as well. But the meat of the stuff is, of course, between Will and his dad. Both Will's dad and Mrs. Coulter, in a scene with Ezreal and Serafina, both state about the same thing. And that is, with them being away from their demons, they're vulnerable. Now, this is different than what you might have expected. I I would have thought, how can you exist without your demon? We've seen instances, though, where Mrs. Coulter can be free of her demon. Azrael was way, way down on that cliffside, away from Stelmaria. So separation isn't impossible. I wonder if it's one of those things where, though it's painful, we know that the witches can do it very easily. 
I guess Serafina can actually send her demon to another world? I mean, that seems like a horrible separation. Although, is that what Will and Lyra are going through right now? Possibly. I did love at the beginning of episode 5 how Will mentioned that maybe his demon is with Pan. And of course, you have the whole tie-in of everything with John Perry here, which is the subject that I really haven't gotten to. John Perry is telling Will about how impossible it is to not feel drained by the fact that you're apart from your demon which makes sense you know if i'm sitting here talking to you i don't want my soul you know down at the bar watching a football game downtown it should be uncomfortable to be that far apart from your soul or from your essence but the thing that really got me about the conversation other than the beautiful emotional stuff about John being proud of Will and all of that stuff, was the fact that he emphasized to Will that that kind of stability, or at least he implied that that kind of stability only works its best if you're in your own world. So is that true for Lyra also? Because if that's the case, then they can't be in the same worlds, at least not for very long, even if their demon is with them. So you put two and two together with that little bit of information from John Perry, and you see trouble down the road for Will and Lyra. So that's pretty awful. Nonetheless, it was still a beautiful scene. Andrew Scott is always an amazing actor. I don't know if I was late to the party on him or not, but ever since his performance as Moriarty in the BBC Sherlock, I have adored him as an actor. He's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, Lyra had emphasized in earlier episodes, maybe it was episode four, that Will kind of needed to see his dad, too. So that was a nice, beautiful payoff and ending to that thread. I still don't quite understand how John Perry knows all of these things. I mean, I know he's a shaman. I know he could do a little magic when he was still alive. He's traveled across worlds. He knows all this stuff. But nonetheless... He always seems to show up and have all of the answers just at the point when everybody needs them. The wheel has landed on the topic, the many faces of Marissa Coulter. Ruth Wilson's great at making faces. But that's not what really this is about. This is about all of the different kinds of emotions that Marissa has gone through. I mean, if Ruth Wilson does not get an American Emmy nod for this show, or at least a nomination and I'm kind of going to lose faith in the Academy in general because she's just too good this season. She's been so wonderful this season. And I've looked at Marissa in a different way really since season two. In season one, pretty darn good at just being the evil bad guy. The first level of the baddie. And then you have the McPhail level of the baddie. And then you have the Metatron level of the baddie. But she was pretty much just a baddie in the first season and I love how complex they've made this character in the adaptation because there are a lot of things that they're including in I think from later books or from the sequel trilogy and there are a lot of things that they are making quite clear in the television show that even in last week's feedback H. Tracy 084 Holly had said you know these kinds of things about Marissa were not apparent to me in the books. 
except maybe until the very end, which is an assessment that I would totally agree with. But from the desperation of the end of the last episode, really from her statement of mission at the beginning of the fourth episode, and when she's talking to Lord Roke through the fourth episode, and through everything that she goes through in that episode, and then the desperation with which she fights for her daughter in the last episode, and the desperation and depression that she suffers in this episode, and the path that she starts to go through to recover from it, but only after Azrael tells her that her daughter is alive. The way that she schooled Azrael when she first got back, I mean, he deserved every minute of that, of that. He deserved every minute of everything that he got in this episode, but I'm going to talk about that in a separate subject. But the way she handled that, her talk with the Gunway, her daring Serafina to kill her, because she just lost everything. There was no reason for her to live. What an amazing scene that was. And then the scene that I don't know if anybody saw coming, the conversation with her demon. I'll be honest, I had been spoiled about that scene. Someone had tweeted the full scene, and I think this was prior to the episodes being released on the BBC iPlayer, but I was so floored by it. I just could not contain myself. I couldn't contain the emotion because Mrs. Coulter's story is tragic. And I know that when we look at the villains that are black and white and we say, well, the villains are the hero of their own story. Isn't it nice that modern storytelling has embraced the fact that villains can actually be heroes? I don't know. Maybe that's a trope that's a lot older than... I'm giving credit for, but in the last 20 years of storytelling, on television anyway, the gray area of a character who has still done despicable things, but you still grow to love, has really amped up a whole lot. You go back to episode four, and I mentioned in our podcast last week that I think that her slamming that chest down that had her mother's stuff in it that there had been an illusion made in season two in her conversation with Lee that she had been abused. And that's why you see the self-abuse even as far back as season one when she does things like hit her demon. And even in that dark moment, her demon had been there for her. And so when it walks away, there is literally nothing else there. When she says... You know, at first it was just curiosity when I would send you away, and then it was so I wouldn't have to face a part of myself that I didn't want to face. I mean, my gut just dropped. I could not truly understand the amount of self-hate, probably brought on by circumstances outside of her control initially, that this woman suffers from. And it just all came boiling out in that one scene Really a very economical scene, but probably one of the most impactful scenes of the whole series. And naturally not one of the most important scenes in terms of plot. But oh my gosh, what a triumphant scene in terms of character. Absolutely amazing. And I used to hate that monkey. Oh my God, I hated that monkey. And somewhere in season two, maybe it was when she left the monkey to go see Mary Malone, or maybe it was the scene with Lee Scoresby. 
But somewhere in season two, I stopped looking at that monkey as being evil, which was a complete flip. And then I started seeing it as being a victim of Mrs. Coulter. And then I started seeing it as being just a part of Mrs. Coulter that protects her from herself by the conclusion of this scene. Again, so many wonderful performances from Ruth Wilson in this episode, but just a couple highlights for me, other than the one that I just pointed out, was Wilson's performance of Marissa when she says, the prophecy is right, when she's talking to Azrael there, and putting it together, how wrong she's been and everything. And it's just, her voice goes up just a little bit, and there's like this gasp in there. It's just immaculate acting just those little things are what make us invest in marissa coulter so much thanks to ruth wilson and of course that scene with seraphina pecla as well fantastic in terms of the state of mind that you could see marissa in at that point and give some props to ruta g for really doing a kind of a stoic seraphina there and helping Marissa see the way, or at least begin to, even though I don't know how much of it Marissa took into heart until she found out that Lyra was still alive. And I've done all this talking about Mrs. Coulter, and you're going to hit me in the head. You're going to throw a brick at this place. That's fine. I want you to tweet. I want you to email. I want you to hive Mastodon. I want you to comment on the YouTube videos. By the way, hit the like button on those YouTube videos. Subscribe to the YouTube channel because Bubba and Catfish do a lot of great coverage of great shows. But here's the take that everybody's going to hate me for. Why did the monkey suddenly at that point choose to leave her? Was it because she was contemplating suicide? Was it because she wasn't herself anymore? Why at that moment, after all that that monkey had been through, why then? What did I miss? Did something happen in these episodes that I didn't see? Was it because that at that point they felt like they had failed their mission to save Lyra? Tell me what I'm not seeing here. Well, that's the first time ever that this has happened. It's landed right on the line between two topics. So I guess we'll do them both. Hell of a harpy and going to see Hester. The dead are free. How weird that that would land right on that line. At least they're somewhat related in the fact that it all happened in the land of the dead, although a lot of this episode did. I guess I'll start with Hell of a Harpy. I loved Gracious Wings. I mean, these harpies are so creepy and so terrible, or they had been. And you find out that it was all just based on the assumption that everything was a lie. After all, they're there to keep people in a prison that they can't get out of that makes them lose themselves. The one thing that we all fear about death is the fact that you wonder if anything you did in this life mattered. And I've gotten completely off the subject of Gracious Wings, but what a wonderful sequence. First of all, the fact that Gracious Wings even swooped out of the air and saved Lyra might have been a little bit convenient. But I do think that the seeds were built up throughout the two episodes. The way that she wasn't really afraid of Gracious Wings. The way that she asked Gracious Wings what their name was. And then this deal that she makes with Gracious Wings 
is incredible, as Will tells her. It's genius. Now, I don't know what they're going to do about that big hole in the ground, and I'm sure that they're going to lose some of the dead when they try to trek along. But if you just tell these harpy stories, oh my gosh, you're going to get to go to wherever it is that Roger and Hester and presumably John Perry and all of these lovely dead people that we met throughout the course of these two episodes, they're going to be free thanks to this deal that Lyra makes. That's part one of the prophecy, which I've got more on that in another topic. But that's literally defeating death. And I love that. So what does that all entail? Well, that goes into our next subject, going to see Hester. Oh my gosh, when Lee mentioned Hester, my heart just exploded. The goodbyes between her and Roger, that was horrible. But at the same time, I was happy for Roger. The goodbye between Lyra and Lee was horrible, but I was also happy for Lee. And I really want to give props to Daphne Keene in these sets of scenes. Because when she's realizing that she had seen a place where she could see Lee one more time, even though I don't think she realized that he was even dead until this episode. And she's finally seen Roger and reconnected with him and kind of made things up for him, which is very important to her. And in doing this making up to him, she's managed to fulfill a prophecy. But the shot that actually got me and made me think, man, Daphne Keene's really doing good, is after she's absorbed all of that, that shot of her still being sad as other people are walking through really got me. Will's kind of been stoic through all of it, but it was really the emotion of Lyra telling these stories and then having to say goodbye to those and realizing that these stories are all that she has and using those stories to liberate the dead and making a deal with Gracious Wings that as long as people tell their stories, they can escape this prison that Metatron has created. And even down to the realization of Azrael, which is reflected in one of the people back in episode five that, you know, we were told this. And if that isn't the case, why do we need this at all? Well, it's for Metatron's control, as we find out in this episode. But all of that weight, not only falling on Lyra, but the release of that as she's letting people that she loves go, all reflected so well in Daphne Keene's performance throughout all of this. Absolutely floored by it. Lin-Manuel Miranda, thank you for one last time. You were a unexpectedly great Lee Scoresby. I was very skeptical about that casting choice. I quickly wasn't after season one, and you delivered all the way through. The music actually pointed to when the f window first opened up, and if you didn't know where they were going, it has to be the world of the Malefa. Because Mary can hear their voices. But before that, Mr. Balf told you because he was playing the Mulefa theme or a New World theme when the window first opened up and Roger decided to walk through. 
these are the ways that the score can help tell the story as well. So, exit stage right, dead. You did good. And it's landed on the final topic. Isn't it funny how it always seems to land on the final topic when you only have one topic left? How does that work? Anyway, this one is called You My Witches, which, if you replaced one letter, could probably be pretty offensive. But in this case, we're talking about all things Serafina and all things Rudiscotti. Let's start with the queen of Lake Lubana because we have to pour one out for her. I dedicated a portion of my musical podcast to the fact that her theme was played. It was never used enough, but it was used in some places throughout season two, and it seemed appropriately used in this particular episode. I hate the fact that we didn't get more Ruta Scotty. Mostly they were just conversations to help flesh out a gunway. We didn't get to see what a badass she was. Her scene with the cliff gas got cut, I believe, last season. So I feel a little miffed about all of that. Nonetheless, that acting performance, the terror, the desperation, plus the fact that your heart is just sinking as you see Sergei fall into the void and then dissipate. I mean, that even brings an oh no from Azriel, the guy who doesn't seem to care about anybody. And that was really well done. Everything seems okay. And then all of a sudden, that little squawk. And then it was all over. There is one impact that Ruta's death has that nothing else has seen to have. And that is that it finally uh, galvanizes everybody who's been thinking the same thing, but they've never been on the same page of vocalizing the same thing to Asriel. And that is that his name should be Asriel because he is a complete jerk. And you can't point it to being conceit. He's just so driven that he doesn't see anything outside of the mission. And yet he claims to have this bigger picture. But when Ruta dies, the Gunway's mad. Seraphine is definitely mad when she arrives, and I'm going to get more to her in a second. Coulter is livid with him over the whole thing about Lyra. How cold is that? Yorick Berninson wants to kill him, and he doesn't even know anything about Ruta. Everybody has their reasons to just be angry, 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 with Asriel, and I'm mad at him too. I don't think there's anything he can do in these last two episodes for me to think anything good about him ever again. What's worse, and I know that this is true in real life, sometimes we pay horrible prices to get what we want, but he's got what he wants. He's got his war. And I don't know if he's got any clue as to how he's actually going to win it. Okay, he's got the abyss. The abyss can evidently soak up angels the same way that it soaks up demons. Humans can fall in there too. We saw that happen with Lyra. This hole has opened up in every planet, every universe, evidently. Metatron's got his way to take all free will away from humankind or Maleficind or Galavespian kind. By the way, do you think Lord Roke ended up at the Land of the Dead? Is he just at the back of the line that Lyra started now? Speaking of which, Lord Roke is the only one that Asriel emphasizes anything about. Okay, he expresses some, I don't know if I'd call it grief, maybe respect in terms of Ruta's death to Serafina, but he's less impacted by the alleged death of his daughter. And when he goes to York and he finds everything out, he doesn't think, oh, my daughter's alive. He thinks, 
Oh, my daughter's fighting Metatron too. What a jerk. And that's why Serafina's appearance feels so justified to me. Because I cannot stand this guy right now. And she puts it all, she puts so much of the big concepts into context with just a few little talks with Mrs. Coulter, with him, with the both of them, regarding things like the prophecy, regarding things like guilt or where guilt should be felt. I was actually tickled to see her holding that knife on Azrael and to see him pleading for his life even though he evidently didn't feel any real fear because he told everybody to put their weapons down. But Serafina, especially regarding this prophecy, which there's a question that I have, and I probably could answer this on my own with a rewatch, but I'd rather farm this out to you. Let me know how wrong I am here. Did we ever hear any mention of Lyra or this prophesized Eve defeating death before? There probably was, but I don't remember hearing it in the television show. I'm pretty sure it's in the books, but I don't remember hearing it before in the television show. It's probably just my memory. I'm getting old. These things happen. But I just don't remember specifically the freeing death or defeating death being part of the prophecy. If we heard it at all, I guess it would have been in season two when Serafina was talking to Will, maybe? Because I'm pretty sure that when... Kaiser was talking about Lyra in season one. We didn't hear anything about that. Might have been too spoilery to include it, come to think of it. Because how does one defeat death? But the reveal of that felt clunky to me. And again, it may be my own fault, but that reveal felt clunky to me. But I still loved how it does put the entirety of the story about this prophecy and this girl into context. And how it does galvanize everyone to work against Metatron even more but this time perhaps for the right reason Serafina says Lyra is your priority now right and I love that and you know during these two episodes I really didn't think too much about Lyra's demon I didn't think too much about Pan there was that scene near the beginning of episode five when Will was talking about demons and there was that scene where Lyra was imagining that she was seeing Pan in the land of the dead and hearing all kinds of horrible things that Pan was saying, which I can't imagine would be far from the truth if she were to talk to Pan right now. But I guess she's got to get reunited with him and Serafina is there to make sure that it happens. She sent Kaisa to find Pan. I don't know how anyone I don't even remember who mentioned it but I don't know how anyone knew that Lyra was going to come to Azrael's Republic I don't even still know where Azrael's Republic actually is is it in Lyra's universe is it in some other universe we know it's different from a Gunways. we know it's different from Mulefa we know it's not Will's Earth where the hell is it anyway Seraphine is evidently going to bring Pan there to Azrael's Republic if it's a spot where there's going to be a war and Mrs. Coulter is worried about Lyra's life, wouldn't she ask Serafina to tell Pan to go somewhere else and have Lyra and Will find them somewhere else where they could be safe? And right now, I guess Lyra and Will are coming out on Malefa, as I said before. I've once again strayed off the subject. It's something I often do. Sorry about that. Let's talk a little bit more about Serafina. Her talk with Marissa Coulter about her self 
worth was incredible. Of course, Ruth Wilson is the one who sold most of that. It's got to be hard to share a scene with Ruth Wilson is all I can say. But I thought Ruta Gamindras did very good in that particular scene. And when she's talking about her own boy, I thought back to the Egyptians and got sad. That was a sad way to kind of say goodbye to the Egyptians, I guess. We haven't seen them since season one, so I don't expect that we will see them anymore this season. Unless they come and join the fight, which I guess could happen, but I don't know how they would know how to get there. Unless this Republic of Heaven is on Lyra's world. It looked to me like when Mrs. Coulter went back to the Magisterium that she disappeared. But maybe she was just moving really fast and not slipping through worlds in the intention craft. I don't know. The more and more I try and think about these things, the worse and worse it gets. By the way, what's worse? What's worse? Once again, I do not have Holly here with me, so I'm just going to ask this question and then I'm going to put it on the poll so that you can decide what's worse having to ask your demon for forgiveness poor Mrs. Coulter poor monkey or having to pick a name for a harpy why gracious wings I'm not going to argue one side or the other I'm going to let you decide once again it'll be on the poll on Twitter the Twitter handle is at the dust podcast and you can get all of the information simply by rewinding because i say all of the podcast contact information multiple times in this podcast please remember though that if you want your feedback included in our final podcast covering this series i may have a feedback podcast but nonetheless you need to get me what you think of this series of the last two episodes of any episodes of the series by no later than December 28th, 2022, to be included in our contest to win a Funko Pop or to be included in our final podcast with Holly. Speaking of Holly, she did give me some three words, so we can include those in this next three-word segment. So what is three words? It's where you try to describe the episode in three words. I would prefer not to have just three adjectives, but that's fine. It's your three words. It's not my three words. So you do whatever you want. I would definitely prefer that you don't put a whole bunch of words that are more than three words into a single hashtag and then do another hashtag like that and then do another hashtag like that. I've had that happen before. I don't read those. And it's so great that Holly actually included her three words before the podcast recording was supposed to happen because now I have them to read to you and I don't have to do any more stalling for her to come up with them. Her three words for 305 for episode five was Father McEpic Fail. <laughs> it was an epic fail. And once again, uh, Will Keen, fabulous job, sir. Uh, and I couldn't be happier to see a character go, especially after that whole wanting to touch Mrs. Coulter's demon bit. My three words for episode five was rest in pieces because he's now separated from his demon. His demon isn't even there. He's just kind of separated. 
Holly's three words for episode six, The Abyss, tell them stories. Great. Uh, that is the whole premise of defeating death, right? Is as long as people who die come and tell the harpies their stories, the harpies will lead them to the place where they can get to the prison escape hole. So that's a window that I guess we'll, we'll have to leave open, right? Because there's no other way for them to get out unless he does. Will leaving windows open is something I have a problem with. But if he's got to leave that window open, that's the only way that that works. I suppose I can forgive that one instance. My three words for the sixth episode of The Abyss was Serafina takes charge. I love her taking charge, telling everybody the context of what the prophecy is, getting everybody on the same page so that they're not just blindly following Azrael, putting Azrael in his place. I love Serafina Pekla. Some other three words that we received via feedback. Els Bells 65 better known as at Badger Ray on Twitter, described both episodes in the same three-word setting, astonishing, exquisite, and emotional, or perhaps the whole series, because that's what Ru Kwan did, who is at Ru Kwan 97, saying, my three-word description for the entire season will be hauntingly beautiful, moving. Love that Ru Kwan, uh, who also says, the feelings linger on after you finish it. Kudos to the cast and crew for his dark materials. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that feedback. Speaking of which, we're going to shorten the feedback up this a little bit. We have a lot, but we're going to have to shorten it up. We'll include it in our final podcast. Or like I said, I may do a feedback podcast after we finish the series together with Holly. But let's get to that right now. So one of the things that we do in feedback is we go over our polls that we put out last week. This one got an astonishing 7,000 votes on the 100 Twitter. That's almost like 70 100s. And the question was, is it Marissa, Marisa, or just whatever the hell James McAvoy wants to say on a given shooting day? Out of the three, there was no clear majority, but the one that came closest to having an overall majority was whatever James McAvoy wants. With 48.6% of the vote, second place came to Marissa at 35.7, and coming in last was Marisa at 15.7. The what's worse questions came in with the poll results from last week. What's worse, having to be separated from your demon or endangering your child more in the process of trying to protect your child? This one was kind of shocking to me because I was sure everybody would go with Holly who said that being separated from your demon was worse. Uh, instead, uh, making it worse won 53.8%. It was a very close vote. Uh, there were 1,300 votes on the 100 Twitter, if you know what I mean. It's almost like 7 out of 13 of you voted for making it worse. And we did get a comment regarding that poll. Uh, Hannah, who is at Plush Noodle on Twitter, said, Separation is a deeply personal pain, and it's said to be a horrific thing. 
literally heartbreaking, but ultimately personal. Inflicting pain on your child, while it may hurt you less, is morally worse. Good point, Hannah. And our final poll was, what's worse, being encouraged to go to the land of the dead or taking orders from a bear? This is kind of a Will-centric poll. And out of 1,600 votes on the 100 Twitter, 81.3% of you said trip encouragement was better than bear porters. Because I did a typo. I didn't put bear orders in the thing. That's why I lost that poll. It's because of the typo. People don't respect a typo. And so since I said bear porters, P-R-D-E-R-S, people decided to vote for the other one. That's the only reason I lost. Holly, I'm pretty sure that I would have completely won with bear orders if I'd have just spelled it properly on the poll. We do have lots and lots and lots of feedback from HTracy084 on Twitter, like pages and pages of it. I'm not going to have time to read it today because we're already behind in producing the podcast, and I had to get all of my other rambling in before I got in anybody else's very clear points, but, you know, it's my podcast, so that's what I do. But we will include it in a future podcast. Uh, Like I said, I'm planning on having a final feedback podcast regarding the series in general uh, and kind of a wrap up of the whole series as well. So I want to continue to hear from you. You have until Wednesday, December 28th, 2022 to get feedback in. That will also include you into our contest where we will put your name up on a wheel and next week we'll spin that wheel in order to determine the winners of our Funko Pops. How do you contact us with feedback? You tweet at the Dust Podcast. You can use Matt's audio blog, M-A-T-T-S audio blog, all strung together on Hive or on Mastodon. Use that same spelling for email, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. You can leave comments on the website, mattsaudioblog.com. Or you can leave comments on our Double P Media YouTubes, youtube.com slash C slash the word double, the letter P, the word media. Don't forget that you can also find Double P on all of the other socials. Use this spelling for just about every other social the word double, the letters PHQ. That goes for Twitter, for Hive, for Instagram. You can use that same spelling for Facebook, facebook.com slash the word double, the letters PHQ. And you can use the YouTube spelling, that's the word double, the letter P, the word media, for their website, doublepmedia.com. No book spoilers this time around because I don't have Holly to bounce any of this off of. So that's going to do it for this time around. Uh, Happy holidays once again. Whatever you celebrate, we really appreciate you sticking around through the holidays with us. Uh, If you don't celebrate any holiday, then uh, just be safe. That's all that we ask is that you be safe this time around because there's usually lots of crazy things. We've got one more set of episodes to go. And again, I apologize for this coming out late. Uh, I put it off as long as I could to see if Holly was going to be able to record or not. And then when she wasn't, uh, I just decided to go on my own. This is bad for you. Um, It makes no difference to me, but it is bad for you because you didn't get Holly, uh, who I'm sure had plenty to say in these episodes. She'll be back next week 
one week of his dark materials left on HBO. Now the show is still running, I suppose, uh, on BBC one episode a week, the way that it should have been enjoyed. Uh, however, because they also released all of the episodes on the iPlayer, I don't know how many people are watching them. I bet some people watch on Christmas night. Let's see. What was episode two? Uh, I guess that'll be a okay episode to watch on Christmas. I don't know. Anyway, happy holidays. Take care. You're listening to The Dust, a His Dark Materials podcast. Tweet the podcast at The Dust Podcast. Send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com and find all back episodes and other information at mattsaudioblog.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Part of Double P Media, doublepmedia.com.